2: No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: This is episode 7 of Mora for July 15th, 2012. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Alohomora. We have another guest on the show this week, but before we get to that, I'm Caleb Graves.
1: I'm Rosie Morris. And I'm Kat Miller.
3: And our guest of this week is uh, someone who comes to us from MuggleNet Interactive. Her name is AJ. Uh, AJ, you want to uh, give a quick introduction of yourself?
0: Hello, everybody. I'm AJ. I am 33 years old. I live in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, and I'm a stay-at-home mom to three wonderful children. Great. Well, welcome to the show. We're happy to have you on. Thanks. I'm happy to be here.
3: Yeah, thanks for joining us.
1: We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsors, Audible. Exclusively for fans of Alohomora, they are offering a free audio download. They have over 100,000 titles to choose from, so head over to audiblepodcast.com to get yours now.
3: All right, guys, for our last episode, we talked about chapters 13 and 14 of Philosopher's Stone. So we want to, as usual, do a quick recap of uh, what we discussed there. So our first comment comes um, concerning Hagrid being motherly, and the comment comes from our main site, and I know I'm going to butcher this this name, <laughs> um, Ephemia? Ephemia? I apologize if I ruined that. But the comment says, I believe Hagrid's fascination with dangerous creatures and his willingness to trust people stem from the same thing. Being half giant, people have been prejudiced against him all his life, expecting him to be violent, etc. Because this is the stereotype people have of giants. But since Hagrid is the complete opposite of the stereotype, I think he wants to give creatures with a bad reputation the chance he would like to be given himself. He doesn't want to be mistrusting because he doesn't want to be mistrusted himself. Also, his father was a man who was willing to have a relationship with a giant. Therefore, he clearly both went against stereotypes and showed a lot of trust. And I assume he raised Hagrid this way.
1: Um, Can I just comment on that very last bit, you know, about the relationship with a giant? Um, Can we just talk briefly about how a man, you know, Hagrid's father, and a giantess, um, uh, for lack of a better word, um, copulate? (laughs) I mean...
3: (laughs) Yeah, that always uh that always definitely had me a little concerned to put it mildly.
1: It, it seems like it would be kind of violent.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh god, we better be careful on this one though. Yeah. <laughs> but but it is a good comment and I I definitely agree with you. Um, you know, he has faced a lot of of stereotypes himself, so and I think that's why You know, later, especially when we see Grop come into the picture, even, you know, Hagrid is fighting for their stereotype to be sort of broken of those around uh, around him.
1: Yeah. And I I mean, again, it just proves the point that, you know, you, you kind of grow up to either react to or, you know, become the environment that you were grown, you know, that you grew up in. And this is another perfect example. So good comment.
3: Yeah, Definitely. All right, and our uh, next comment comes from Leslie Lovegood on our forums. And uh, she says, During the podcast, we wondered what Hermione would have seen in the mirror. Speaking about the mirror, Eris said. In a 2006 interview, Joe said, As you know, Harry, Ron, and Hermione have just finished their penultimate year at Hogwarts, and Hermione and Ron have told Harry that they're going to go with him wherever he goes next. So at the moment, I think that Hermione would see most likely the three of them alive and unscathed. And Voldemort finished. But I think Hermione would also see herself closely entwined with another person. I think you can probably guess who.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great quote, and a lot of people sent that into us. But that's after Half-Blood Prince. I mean, we're talking Philosopher's Stone. What would she have seen in her first year? I mean, like dancing outstandings on her owls? I mean, you know, little o's dancing across the paper?
3: Probably so. I mean, you know, maybe she's even even more nearsighted than that right now, just, you know, hoping to get through all of her exams this year.
0: I think that at this point, you know, at the end of the first book, maybe she would see herself being accepted by her peers. Because at the beginning of the book, nobody is her friend. And then she finally becomes friends with Harry and Ron. But then, you know, they mess up and they lose all those points for Gryffindor and suddenly nobody's talking to her again. So maybe at the end of the first book, she'd see herself as friends with everyone.
2: Yeah, that was my thought, too, that she would see herself with, I don't know, at least Harry and Ron as friends. Um, I get the idea that Hermione's the kind of person that maybe didn't necessarily have friends much during her primary school years as well. So that's almost why she's kind of immersed herself so much into trying to learn about the wizarding world in all of her books. She wants to fit in and that's Mm -hmm. what she wants in the mirror.
3: Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I think I, uh, that's a good point, Rosie. I hadn't really thought about much uh, of Hermione's like life before she's at Hogwarts, but I would also be willing to bet she probably didn't have much friends then either. Her parents probably also kept her with a pretty sheltered lifestyle.
2: Especially being dentist, she wasn't even allowed to sweep. <laughs>
3: yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's so funny. All right, great comment. Uh, and our next one comes uh, regarding uh, gold and Gams law. And uh, this is from the main site from Zeo Regredians. Uh, I apologize if I mispronounced that. Uh, The comment says, I think that gold is valuable to Wizards because it is one of GAMP's exceptions rather than an exception because it is valuable. Gold wouldn't be valuable anymore if just anybody could produce it at any time. And I think galleons are made out of gold. Uh, you completely undermine their economic system if anybody can create gold. It's a subtle difference, but a difference nonetheless.
2: I think that's a really interesting question when it comes to the the last book. Um, if you think about when the trio are in the, the vault in Gringotts and they're trying to find Hufflepuff's cup, they're in amongst a lot of gold, which then replicates. So how can it be one of GAMP's exceptions when it's obviously possible to replicate it, unless they weren't pure gold items, of course?
1: Yeah, I mean, I wonder if they, if they stay, you know, kind of like uh, um, leprechaun gold, you know how it oh, vanishes? yeah,
2: true. Yeah, maybe that's what it is.
1: It's probably just meant to suffocate, and you probably couldn't take it out of there and spend it, is what I would imagine. Yeah. You couldn't really hold it because it would just keep replicating. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but that makes sense. That comment makes sense.
3: Yeah, I guess my only problem with it potentially is if gold is valuable to wizards because it is one of Gamp's exceptions, does that mean gold is valuable to muggles also because of Gamp's exceptions? Because, I mean, even though we don't, you know, we're not muggles, it's still something that's very valuable.
1: Huh, I wonder, yeah, if the wizarding world influenced the muggle world in that way. That's a good thought. Yeah. Never thought about that. That makes sense.
3: Well, interesting point. You know, Gemp's Law. I think, well, I would love it if we continue to talk about this throughout the series, because I still want, I want, I hope J.K. Rowling tells us one day what they all are, because I really want to know them all. But,
1: Maybe she doesn't know herself.
3: I mean, yeah. So if you're listening, Queen Rowling, let us know. Let us know. <laughs> Figure it out. Oh, all that'd right. be a dream come true. <laughs> Hold on. Uh, all right. And our next comment comes um, about the, how we discuss Snape and uh, the Quidditch match. And uh, from the main site, Remus Lupin 12 says, Hermione and Ron had prepared the leg locker curse to use on Snape in the match. If they had used this on him, would his legs snap together with enough force to break the broomstick he's on?
1: <laughs> I thought that was a pretty great comment. Really funny. That's clever. Yeah, very clever. Hopefully not. <laughs>
3: well, I mean, yeah. Well, I guess, yeah. From a bystander's point of view, hopefully not. But it still would have been pretty amusing, I guess. Especially I at the loved point. To see it. Especially at this point, because you think that Snape is such a terrible person. So yeah, <laughs> would have uh, been good. <laughs> And continuing with the Snape's comments, uh, this time also regarding Filch and Madame Pomfrey, from our forums, Allie Woods uh, says, Does Madame Pomfrey's confidentiality extend to Staff and or Dumbledore? I would assume she would tell the headmaster if something odd happened, including someone, especially a teacher, coming in with a huge bite out of their leg on the night a troll got into the dungeon. Madame Pomfrey cares very deeply about the students, and if someone came in with a suspicious injury from a night, all the students were in extreme potential danger, she would say something. In fact, I'm sure she tells Dumbledore every time a student comes in with an odd injury.
0: I think there has to be some sort of a code of ethics that she goes with. I mean, you know, it's one thing for someone to come in because they tripped on a moving staircase and hurt themselves, but something like that, I mean, at least I would hope if I was sending my children there, that word would get back to Dumbledore or whoever the headmaster was that something strange was going on, because I would want my children protected in that way.
1: But, I mean, how how many odd and weird things do we think happened before Harry Potter got to the school?
0: Well, with the Weasley twins there, I'm sure quite a few things. Yeah, but probably not troll and,
1: you know, uh, three-headed dog bites, I would imagine. It is
2: Hogwarts. I'm sure there's plenty of interesting things that happen without Harry being there. I mean... The marauders had their adventures there was a werewolf at school for at least (laughs) seven years
3: yeah and i also just don't see dumbledore wanting to know like i i mean unless you know like this comment sort of alludes to if it's something you know major on a particularly dangerous night that's one thing but you know if it's just like you know hoodlums out there doing their stuff i don't think dumbledore is really particularly interested in what shows up he knows what happens
1: hoodlums is that what you said
3: yeah Nice.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that. He probably doesn't care about the, the trivial like uh, you know, charm exploration stuff, the dueling fights, whatever.
3: Yeah, but I, th- I think I think Madam Pomfrey takes her role and kind of like AJ was talking about sort sort of ethical, um, code her role very seriously. I mean, we even see times where you know Dumbledore is, um, talking about how, somewhat nagging Miss uh, Madam Pomfrey can be about what she wants done with regard to the healing process. So I think, you know, she pretty much, she she runs that show. I think she does what she needs to, and Dumbledore respects that.
1: Well, how long has she been at Hogwarts?
3: Ooh, does anybody know? I don't know. We don't get much really that much information on her. Let me look it up. I, wanna, I can't remember if... Uh, I, don't wanna
1: I mean, if I bet she, it's been years, Um. You know, she, she's I'm gonna p-
3: check out the uh, the lexicon. Shout out to Steve for his yeah. Uh, what up,
1: Steve? Um, I mean, is she in my head? Maybe this is you know movie canon leaking into book canon, but in my head, she looks very old-fashioned. So I imagine she's been there for a while.
2: Yeah, I think she was meant to be quite old and quite strict. So. I think she is kind of the idea of the... Um...
3: Oh, well, we know... Okay, according to according to the lexicon, um, she's middle-aged, but she's older than Sirius and James because she was the nurse at that time. So she was okay. around for the the marauders.
1: No age for sure, not sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Hopefully we'll find out more about her as well. Come on, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I have a feeling we're going to be left with a lot of unanswered questions. Uh, probably. Yeah,
0: unfortunately.
2: But even aside from... Poppy Pumphrey at this stage, I mean, why didn't Snape tell Dumbledore what was going on if he suspects Quirrell? If he's going to risk his own legs trying to stop him, why doesn't he just go and tell Dumbledore?
3: Well, do we know that he doesn't tell him?
2: I don't know. If he doesn't, then they don't seem to do anything.
1: But I mean, yeah. this feeds back into the theory that Dumbledore already knows without Snape telling him, right? Like, because Dumbledore's, you know, creating all no these difference. events anyway. Yeah. Although, I mean, he probably couldn't have guessed that Voldemort was in the back of Quirrell's head.
3: No. Yeah, that's that's fair. I don't think he, he knew that either.
1: Yeah, I don't think Snape even knew that. He probably thought he was getting messages from him. Yeah. From elsewhere. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Things to ponder.
3: Definitely. <laughs> and our next comment um, comes uh, from our forums. And it's actually many of you guys who are on our forums talking about the Invisibility Cloak. Um, so there's a large discussion going on on the forums regarding the invisibility cloak and whether or not it changes its size, length, et cetera, to cover and protect the owner as they grow older and or larger, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the discussion is really intriguing. Some people, you know, because they comment, it, this stems from our discussion about the the cloak when Harry and Hermione were carrying Norberta up up to the tower. And a lot of people were, were commenting on how No matter how old they seem to be, with the exception of the very, very later books, the cloak seems to kind of stretch and change to accommodate them. Yeah. I think, to an
2: extent, it's just artistic license. Um, I don't think the cloak actually does change. It's just...
3: Yeah, because, I mean, definitely when they get older, you know, they have trouble fitting. And I think even to some point in the end, I can't remember when it happens, but, like... They say something about how th- all three of them can't fit it fit under it anymore, and like only two of them go or something like that. Um, so I don't think. Ah, uh, yeah, I would agree with Rosie. I don't think it can can really grow that much. I, th- I think the this Deathly Hallow is you know t- its ability to not ever um, waver in its ability to provide invisibility is enough magic, and I don't think that's really something else that can it can do.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I agree. Me
3: too. But still an interesting thing, yeah, to th- consider. Maybe that's yeah. something other invisibility cloaks that, you know, obviously we know that they are not as strong as this Deathly Hallow. Maybe that's a feature that they're able to do, and there's some sort of trade-off between being able to do that and how long it can last or something like that.
1: Huh. Yeah, maybe. Like a like a weird weird spell on the fabric or something. Yeah. If you want to join the discussion, you can go over to the forums at alohomora.moglenet.com and put in your input.
3: Definitely. And uh, our final comment um, about the chapters from last week comes about Hogwarts security. And this is on our forums from hydro I believe. And the comment says, at this point, Voldemort is not in power. Also, they have the man who is considered to be the world's greatest wizard as their headmaster. I cannot see anyone trying to break into Hogwarts unless they were crazy or had a very good reason. Also, they would have a hard time getting into the common rooms if they were trying to kill or kidnap a child. Okay.
1: It is so not true because, you know, Sirius Black got into the castle and into the common room. That's so true. So I feel like they definitely need some kind of security, and the fact that there was none um, is either very lacking or again, feeds into this theory, again, that Steve presented to us last week, that Dumbledore is orchestrating everything, and that he knew they were going to be there.
3: Yeah.
2: But Kat, look at that comment. It says that they wouldn't break into the castle unless they were crazy or
1: had a very good reason. Sirius was thought to be crazy, and he definitely had a very good reason to try and break in. That's true, but the comment, I mean, I was. I guess I was commenting on where they said they'd have a hard time getting into the common yeah. rooms.
0: Yeah. Well, Sirius yeah. got into the common rooms because he found Neville's list, because... He left the list of all the passwords laying around, so Sirius got hold of that. And
2: he got into the castle using a secret passage that he that no one else knew about because right. it's the one into under the Whomping Willow, and only the Marauders knew about it.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think well, I think Sirius in general is this special special exception to a lot of those things. That's true. <laughs> Good old Sirius.
1: But I mean, do do we really think that there was no security? No, there there must be
2: some security And, I mean you've got the the castle walls that no one's supposed to be able to get through and um even the the doors that we see um who is I think it's Flitwick talking to and um but that's later on in in uh prisoner of azkaban again. There is definitely security, but just possibly not enough because they don't think that Voldemort is a threat at this point.
1: How how do you think um like, if we remember back to when, or in the later books, when Voldemort comes back to ask for the post of, you know, DADA teacher, um, how do you think he got to the school? Did he walk from Hogsmeade? Well,
2: we see Lucius Malfoy come and kind of stalk around quite often. So that it must be possible to get into the school without necessarily going to it. I mean, yeah, you must just be able to walk from Hogsmeade, or there must be some kind of point at which you can
1: an entrance point somewhere.
3: Hmm, yeah.
1: But what about like if at this point if all everyone had escaped from Azkaban? It seems to me as though all those death eaters would just be able to walk up to the school
0: and go right in. Hopefully we would know if they escaped. <laughs> yeah, if there was a mass breakout, I'm sure that steps would be taken to ensure the safety of the students.
3: Yeah, I mean and and we know that that does happen, arguably With in the dementors. inefficient means, but yeah.
1: All right. I concede. (laughs) Cool. Okay, so
2: um, that was our chapter discussion from last week, but we also had our special feature, which was the Beast Inquisition, which was all about dragons, which I was really annoyed that I missed, because if anyone out there who knows me knows, I am completely obsessed with dragons. So I'm really happy that I get the feedback on this one. Um, So we had some really great comments, and this one is from Cyprus on our forums. It says, I agree with the statement that Charlie would be something akin to a ranger for the, for the U.S. park services. Um, he would be charged with the, the health and the well-being of dragons, much the way of a ranger in Yellowstone. If that is the case, what would happen to the dragons that wandered off the reserve or the poachers who
1: went to, into the land to kill them? What do you guys think? That makes me sad. I guess I'd never thought about the fact that there were poachers, but yeah. I mean, there must be.
2: I mean, to get uh, things like the one cause dragon heartstring, you have to, you know, kill a dragon.
1: Yeah, but do you think that they're they're taken from dragons that are already kind of dead or dying? I would hope that they would wait. I mean i i can't see all I can't see Ollivander going to this reserve and killing a dragon to make wands. No, you'd hope not.
2: (laughs) But that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, if you think about one cause, I mean, phoenix tail feather and unicorn hair they're they're not particularly Living aspects of these creatures—they are things that fall off that you can collect. With Dragon Heartstring, is very different. Yeah. Does that maybe show a bit of the violent nature of the the animal that it's coming from?
3: Yeah, I, I would I would think so. And, and you know, sort of thinking about Oliver, I agree that he would not, you know, be seeking out uh, live dragons. I think almost that he would be—he would want a dragon that has you know gone through its its life, died because. Probably there's some, at least to him, there's some value in the aging aspect of it. Um,
1: Oh, that makes sense. Like it's stronger because Mm -hmm. it's coming from an older dragon who's kind of lived. Is that what you mean? Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: I'm sure dragons battle each other as well if they're that kind of protective
2: of their eggs.
3: Definitely. They probably
2: do die of natural causes or of, of other dragon
1: fights fairly often. Do you think they're able to roam freely in the reserve? Or are they kind of caged up like we see them in Goblet of Fire?
3: I would think somewhat freely. I would freely. hope they were
1: free-range dragons.
3: <laughs> yeah, I would think somewhat freely. I don't I don't see, you know, Charlie and the gang boxing boxing them up in cages. So. I think they're
2: quite like giants. They they kind of, they know what's good for them. They know where it's safe and where they can hide. I mean, we hear Ron talking about dragons living in, is it Scotland or Wales? Um, just in the mountains. Um, I think it's Wales, Welsh green. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there, there are safe places for dragons outside of the reserve as well, but they, they know what's good for them, they know their habitat, and they, they know where they're safe. Good. Okay, I'm with that. Okay. Um, so our next comment is from Crydel, I think, on the main site, um, and it says, going off, uh, going off of why Draco has his name, I think it is truly based off of the constellation. The Black family is known for naming their children after stars, with Narcissa being the exception. And I can see Narcissa wanting to continue this tradition. The constellation Draconis is circumpolar, which means that it never sets. It is, in essence, an immortal constellation. Assuming that both Lucius and Narcissa paid enough attention to astronomy, I can see them enjoying that fact. Draconis also used to contain the North Star in about 5000 BC, which could symbolize a leader to many. Um, With all the powerful symbolism, who wouldn't want to name their kid that?
3: That's an awesome comment. I love it. Definitely.
0: I totally agree with it. There are so many instances on the black family tree where the witches and wizards are named after stars. I mean, you have Bellatrix, Sirius, they're both stars. You have Orion, Cygnus, Andromeda, Draco. They're all names of constellations. So, you know, it could very well be a continuation of that tradition. But are they all, um, blacks by marriage or by birth?
3: Mm, I think most of the ones she just mentioned are by birth.
1: Okay. Well then that makes sense.
3: Mm, Yeah.
1: Good catch, especially with kind of Draco being a dragon
2: and being a, a powerful name. You definitely you could, there's mm-hmm. definitely a lot of good points about having that name.
1: But is he powerful?
2: Not necessarily in life, but the hope for his birth. If you're if you want to name your child to set him up to be something great, you would want a great name to go with that.
1: Right. Yeah. But I mean, did they achieve that? I guess is what I'm saying. Like, is Draco is he living up to his name?
3: Uh, I don't think I don't particularly think so, at least in the respect we're thinking, I think I see Draco more just like his parents, like they will do what it takes to survive. And I think there's certainly, you know, a strength in that. It's why the Malfoys are some of my favorite characters in the series. But as far as like sheer strength and like being a dominating force, like, you know, perhaps a dragon, um, I don't see that as much.
2: But living up to a name is a really interesting idea when it comes to Draco, because he's constantly trying to live up to the Malfoy name, if not his own first.
3: Yeah, that's true. Um,
2: He's always constantly trying to be kind of, you know, the Death Eater in waiting.
1: I'm not, I see, I was never really convinced that that's who he truly wanted to be. I mean, I, I feel like...
3: But think about it, whenever Lucius gets put into Azkaban, he feels, you know whether i mean there's definitely some pressure there but i mean he he does go through with it you know he gets his dark mark and you know he he takes his his father's place
1: but he does that for his father right not i, I don't think it's necessarily because he believes in all the philosophies i mean it, sure he grew up with that and it's kind of part of who he is but i also think that if he hadn't grown up with that he wouldn't have necessarily you know, agreed with those values.
2: Yeah, I definitely think it's a, a nurture thing. He's definitely living up to his name because that's what he's expected to do. I think Draco is a really interesting character in so far as how he changes throughout the books as well. I mean, he the, he, the idea that he is living up to this kind of expectation of his, of his father kind of carries on throughout the books as he sees Harry going from strength to strength on his own rights. And I think Draco, I don't know if he, jealous is the right word, but he he almost learns a better way of doing things through
1: watching and being an enemy to Harry throughout the books. Yeah, they definitely give and take a lot to each other, um, Mm -hmm. personality-wise and experience-wise, for sure.
2: Cool, okay, great comment. With lucky landslots, you can get
0: lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone
2: seen the bride and groom?
0: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Um, Our last comment is from KaiKid92 on the forums, and it says, Regarding the international prescription against the breeding of dragons, um, do you really need any reasons other than
1: the obvious ones? (laughs) Nice. Th- thanks, thanks, Chris, for that. Um, yes, actually, we do. Otherwise, there'd be no reason to have this podcast.
3: So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there are plenty of reasons, including obvious ones,
2: and who wouldn't want a world with dragons in it?
3: Yeah, I mean, I agree, and and I am with you, Rosie. I absolutely love dragons because you know it's not. So, it ties so much to um, so much other literature and myth, and it just. I just love dragons.
1: (laughs) I mean, they're everywhere. I mean, think about how many stories would be totally different if there wasn't a dragon in them.
3: And they're so
2: interesting as well as a kind of a a folk memory. You can tie them to dinosaurs. You can tie them to ancient stories of crocodiles and things like that. And they're, they're like unicorns. They're something that pretty much every single culture has knowledge of, whether they've got kind of access to our modern stories of them or not. Yeah. And they're just... They're ever-present, even if they never existed. So let's hope that one day they did.
1: <laughs>
3: Absolutely. Yes, let's hope. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and you know, all of this, this talk about um, dragons being in so many other stories reminds me that everyone, all of you listeners out there, should check out our sponsors, Audible. They have what you want, what you really, really want to listen to, over <laughs> 100,000 titles to choose from in just about every genre.
1: Yeah, I love the huge selection that they have. I mean, I get my daily newspaper, my monthly magazines, and, of course, my fulfill of audiobooks all in one place.
3: Exactly. And Audible is the best place for all your audio downloading needs. Plus, Audible has a really great special offer for all of our U.S. and Canadian listeners. They can visit our unique link created specifically for them and get a free audio download today, right now. You just have to go to audiblepodcast.com. Open.
2: I've been really into the, the Hunger Games series lately, uh, obviously with the big movie that just came out, and I actually just purchased the Catching Fire audiobook, and I love it. It's really crisp, it's really clear, and was super easy to download.
3: Yeah, and, and every one of our listeners should take a minute to visit the site and start downloading directly to their computer right now. Uh, for easy listening on burned CDs, MP3 players, and even your iPad, iPhones, or Androids. So again, the website made just for you is audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E, podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, dot com slash open, O-P-E-N. So visit audiblepodcast.com slash open for your free download today.
1: So let's jump right into um, the podcast question of the week. This is the recap from last week. Um, since Noah's not here, um, I'm taking this over for him for the week. And the question last week um, is in response to um, Steve Van Der Ark's theory about Dumbledore kind of being, you know, the creator of all of the events that happened to Harry, not only in the first book, um, but kind of overall. So... The question is, there are two possible answers to the incredible narrative that happens throughout book one. First, the magical universe has a way of working for a purpose. Objects in the world work within, uh, work with each other due to a kind of innate magic quality. Or is Dumbledore truly making things happen behind the scenes? And we got a lot of comments about this question. People are very, very passionate about it. Um, So I just chose a few of the best ones here. Um, let's see. This first uh, first comment is from Bludger Hugger on the main site. Nice username. I really like that. Um, here she says, "If Dumbledore is in fact making things happen, why is it that he allowed himself to be drawn away from the castle the night Quirrell slash Voldemort went after the stone? Would he really have wanted Harry to face Voldemort face to face at such a young age?" What do you guys think about that?
2: I don't know. I, I find it really hard to discuss Dumbledore because he changes so much um when we get to his sort of final story in in half-blood prince um i think he would have wanted harry to face voldemort when he knew voldemort wasn't at his strongest um we, at this stage even if he is playing things behind the scenes dumbledore knows that voldemort is still this kind of ghost figure um he isn't at full strength so if there was any time for harry to to kind of face him and come to terms with what happened um, in his early childhood, it would be while Voldemort is still at this stage. Um, so, uh, an eleven-year-old, twelve-year-old facing a ghost is a lot easier than, you know, a fifteen-year-old a facing a, a fully fledged Dark Lord, as he later does. Yes, I suppose that
1: that's true.
3: Yeah, I mean, this this question definitely. I always thought about this too. Like, why why is Dumbledore gone? You know, this night. And, you know, maybe it is just because, I mean, if we want to go with this theory that, you know, Dumbledore's making things happen, maybe he knew he needed to be away so that Harry would sort of take it into his own hands.
1: Or maybe Dumbledore really was just duped, you know? I mean.
3: It's possible, it, yeah. Isn't
1: it possible? I mean. We, well, yeah, know? and
3: I guess we'll we'll talk about this when we finish up. But I think there's something in the chapter, unless I'm forgetting um, wrong, that. He says, like, he rushed, like, as soon as he heard or something, um, back to the castle. So, I, I mean, I think it's possible that, you know, he, it just happened.
1: I mean, he does make mistakes. He Absolutely. proves it time and time again.
3: Yes, definitely.
1: So, our next comment is from Sarah Slytherin, again on the main site. She says, the way I see it, Dumbledore knew with a high degree of certainty, because of the prophecy and the actions Voldemort took because of it, that one day Harry and Voldemort would be warring against each other. I feel as though many things Harry experienced were orchestrated by Dumbledore as a way of preparing Harry and ensuring his success in the eventual battle for the greater good of the wizarding world. If Harry hadn't gone through the experiences he had in the first six books, it is obvious that he wouldn't have been able to hunt down the Horcruxes
0: and defeat Voldemort.
3: Yeah. I mean, this is sort of what I was kind of just alluding to, I guess.
0: Well, I think, I mean, obviously Dumbledore did hear the prophecy. Well, at least kind of because Snape went and told it to him. But um but yeah, I mean eventually we all know that well at least Dumbledore knows that Harry and Voldemort would have to face off one by one because neither can live while the other survives. So I mean I'm a big believer in the Dumbledore being the master manipulator, and I totally agree with that wholeheartedly. So
2: I think it is clearly shown in this book as well. Um if if we look at the, the final chapters which we'll be discussing in a little bit later. Um pretty much everything he has to face at the end of this book is stuff that he's already just experienced in this first year. Um, I think we've discussed before how how strange it is for the professors to be setting tasks that a first year could handle. Um, so if there isn't some kind of influence of Dumbledore kind of setting that up, especially with the Mirror of Erised in, in chapter 17, um, I think there's definitely some kind of tweaking going on to to make sure that harry is ready to to do this final challenge
1: well actually um clay 2011 again on the main site kind of has a comment on that idea rosie Um, the comment is i think that magic will find a way to work but dumbledore has the ability to bend it even further up to the point where everything in the whole series is caused by something that he's done i also think that when he sets things into motion the people involved have the ability to change the outcome. But really, Dumbledore is always the one behind the curtains whispering the instructions. Definitely.
3: Yeah, I like that.
1: I love the Wizard of Oz illusion as well.
3: Oh, too true, yeah.
1: Yes. (laughs) Um, Nightstrike91 points out that things work in favor of the plot isn't exclusive to Harry Potter. The comment says, There are many stories out there that wouldn't have been working if it wasn't for some curious circumstances occurring to move the plot forward. I tend to answer similar questions that pop up while I read all kinds of books with, well, if it wasn't a little bit extraordinary, it wouldn't make a good story.
3: Yeah, that's also, I mean, clearly that's, yeah, a literary device that's used quite often.
1: And um, our, our last comment on this topic is from Alyn Wickest, maybe. Um, the comment is, as J.K.R. has said, Dumbledore is her and she is Dumbledore. So, J.K.R. controls and manipulates all of that which happens within the Harry Potter universe. Mm. So, I mean, I guess it's true that if you think of it that way, Dumbledore really is controlling everything because J.K.R. is controlling everything. There would be no universe without her.
3: That's true. It's a good way to, good way to wrap up that question, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would agree. With that, let's jump right into the chapters that are going to be discussed this week, and they are chapters 15 and 16 of Philosopher's Stone.
3: Great. So we start out with chapter 15, entitled The Forbidden Forest, and we get to finally jump into this dark, mysterious place, and it starts off with um, Harry... As if you remember, we finished off our last episode with Harry and Hermione getting caught, being up on the tower, and Harry is in trouble and he's thinking a mile a minute for an excuse. And I I wanted to point this out because it was written so well that it took me back to so many times where I had been in these sticky situations. And I feel like a lot of us have have experienced this where you're trying to think of the best excuse um, to put out there for, for whatever it is that you're in trouble for. Have you guys experienced this? I'm sure.
1: Um, well, yeah, I, I was the Goody Two shoes growing up. Um,
3: okay, okay, so
1: I never really got in trouble. I mean, I didn't even go to the principal's office once, so um, I can't say that this has ever happened to me, but I'm sure it's happened to many of my friends.
0: It's definitely happened to me when I was younger and, you know, now having kids when my older kids get in trouble. You can definitely. Oh, they, see I hope it. they
3: pull it out on you. That's oh, so funny. you can
0: totally see it on their faces. Their eyes are going back and forth really quick. It's actually <laughs> kind of cute.
3: So that's so funny. I love it. All right, and um, so Neville is. We find out also in trouble. It's not just Harry, Hermione, and Draco, but also Neville because he is showing some more of his Gryffindorness, breaking rules to try to keep his friends out of trouble, and we see a lot of that in this chapter. So we can come back to that um, in a bit. But so Harry brings up, you know, well, excuse me, Harry, um, is in this situation with McGonagall, um, ready to discipline them. And it made me wonder, has, has nothing this crazy ever happened in Hogwarts, meaning dragons being involved somehow to where McGonagall is so unwilling to believe it actually happened. She immediately, uh, rules out the dragons have been there and she thinks they have made up this story to get Draco in trouble. And that, that made me wander for a bit.
1: Well, I mean, we touched on this briefly before, but this got me wondering, um, wasn't McGonagall around when um, Tom Riddle was around in school?
3: Yeah, I think she would be, yeah. I
1: think so too. So do you think he really didn't tell anyone about um, Aragog? Because if he caught Hagrid with Aragog and he turned Hagrid in... Someone must know about her existence. So, obviously, you know, maybe if McGonagall knows, then this shouldn't be so far fetched for her, is my point.
2: I think it's more the fact that they are first years running around with a dragon. I mean, you Mm -hmm. wouldn't, dragons are rare anyway. You wouldn't expect one to be at Hogwarts necessarily that's even though McGonagall would know about Hagrid's love of them
3: yeah so maybe just, if they knew that Hagrid if she knew Hagrid was involved somehow she might be more willing to accept it but the fact that it's just a couple of yeah. kids
1: all right I suppose I could see that okay. I buy that yeah yeah okay
2: and it is more likely that they are trying to do trying to get Draco in trouble because
0: she knows about their rivalry
2: so
3: yes definitely that's, that's house rivalry that's been
0: going on forever though so you know that too
3: yeah. Also, I, I just have to take a moment because reading this as a Gryffindor, I am hurt as many house <laughs> points that she takes away. I mean, it's like, girl, that's our house. You are tripping by taking so much. Like, punish them, please. But, man, I was hurt as a Gryffindor.
1: I mean, that's a lot of points. And, you know, I I wonder if it's, I mean, obviously, part of it is a plot device because then Dumbledore gives them back to them in the end. but. 50 points each I, I agree that that seems like a lot
2: and just for a simple lie as well a simple lie and being out of bed that's that's overkill definitely
3: yeah that yeah that's that's a thing like it's it's a lie and being out of bed so it's almost like you know maybe rolling makes it so much to sort of keep the dramatic plot going as like they are you know, shunned by their house, and they're, you know, ignored by everyone, so it gives them room to get out and, you know, go to the the third floor corridor, so maybe it's just all part of that.
1: But I have to wonder how many students are caught out of bed. I mean, does she take 50 points away from all of them?
3: Yeah, because, I mean, I know I, w- I would have gotten caught out of bed, and like, man, that that's a, that's a common thing to be, I feel like. Yeah,
2: that. That was my biggest shock in that chapter. It wasn't that she didn't believe them running around with the dragon. It's that four students out of bed, I've never heard of such a thing. I mean, really? Four yeah. students out of bed at one night, and that's rare? This is a school with how many hundreds of kids?
3: Yeah.
1: It's a supporting school. They're going to be out of bed fairly often.
3: Exactly. I mean, yeah,
1: that's probably the one rule I would have broken over and over again. Yeah. Myself. If only to go down to the kitchens to get some food.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: Well, it also makes you wonder if there's some sort of a point scale they go by. Like, you know, this infraction merits this amount of points lost. Or if it's just one of those things that the professor is like, well, I feel like docking 15 points just for no reason whatsoever. I mean, there has to be some sort of an accountability there. Otherwise, people could just go around docking points in obscene amounts for seemingly no reason.
1: Well, here's this too. I mean, if you remember, Harry gets caught out of bed um, In Prisoner of Azkaban, you know, when he sees Peter Pettigrew on the map, Snape catches him and he doesn't take away any points. He no. doesn't even get it. I mean, for Snape, that's usually the first thing he says is, you know, 10 points, five points from Gryffindor. So is McGonagall just in a bad mood or has something else happened?
3: Yeah. Or is it
2: literally just a, pro- a plot point? Both, maybe.
3: You tell us, fans. You tell us.
1: <laughs> yes. Tell us what you think. <laughs>
3: And so they lose all these points. I'm still broken and hurt. And so are the Hufflepuffs and the Ravenclaws because they are upset that Gryffindor has lost this opportunity to beat Slytherin. So clearly my thought is that they are not doing well enough to make a run for it, which makes me say they need a better work ethic. Like They need to motivate themselves to get up there.
1: Ooh, them's fighting words.
3: (laughs) I'm sorry. Like you, You can't expect us to do all the work. Come on, get out there and do it.
2: But it was all to do with Quidditch, isn't it? I mean, Ravenclaw would have been up there if if um, Gryffindor hadn't just won the, all those points in Quidditch. Is that am I misremembering that? No, that's true. No, that's
3: yeah. right. Yeah. Mm. So
2: they are trying. It's just hard when you've got kind of yeah. this sporting thing that gets in the way.
3: Yeah, I guess it's just someone want. It's when someone wins something for so long, uh, everyone is rooting for anyone to beat top all them. Well yeah, and I mean in
1: and, and Gryffindor, you know, as we've all said, they kind of feel like the jock house, so I'm not surprised that you know yeah. they kind of, Yeah, you're proud of that, huh? <laughs> um, you know, that that they and this is gonna sound rude, sorry, Gryffindors, but that's kind of how they usually jump ahead is by winning the Quidditch matches. At least that's what we see in the books.
3: Well, they don't win the Quidditch Cup for a while, even though they win this house cup, so
1: Right. Well, that's what I mean, like, you know, because they get the points from the Quidditch match. So, yeah, we Ravenclaws prefer books to brooms.
0: That's right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And we Hufflepuffs just don't care about the points so much as just living it up. It's
1: fine. That's right. It's all about life with
2: the Badgers, (laughs)
3: isn't it? So Harry, Harry leaves uh, the library at some point and he starts to hear voices. And so as he investigates, he hears Uh, Quirrell sobbing against someone um, in response to someone later we realize it must be Voldemort is this is this the first time we really hear Quirrell conversing with Voldemort and um, also even though the room is empty Harry of course still finds a way to fit Snape into the picture saying that Snape has must have just left
1: I mean yeah I think it's the first time that we see him talking to himself but
2: isn't that interesting? the The fact that the first time we actually see him, he is this kind of broken figure. Mm-hmm. He's not wanting to do what Voldemort's telling him, which is
1: unlike what we see later on. Exactly. I mean, this is a point where he gives in, right? I mean, he just he just says, "All right, all right," and he's sobbing, and then yep. Just you know, a couple days later, boom! Chapter sixteen happens. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think that? um Voldemort was
2: asking him to do at this point. I've always assumed it was the, the hunting down of the unicorn and trying to get him to drink his blood. Um because of what Hagrid says, but I guess we'll discuss that a bit later on.
1: I mean it must be. It must be, you know, I'm I'm we need more blood, go go kill another one. Yeah, that was my thought too.
3: And so since Harry is able to work Snape into the picture and still blame him, he and Hermione and Ron think that Snape finally has enough information to make a move on the stone. So that sort of sets up. We're finally getting into this point where we are going after Snape to stop him. And um, and then we get uh, but Harry doesn't even though this th- suspicion is coming, he's like, nah, I ain't gonna mess with it. I already just lost so many house points. I'm gonna sit here and study my astronomy. And this is sort of like a trivial point, but he mentions how he's studying Jupiter's moons. And I'm I'm just thinking, man, I'm really glad that I didn't need to name Jupiter's moons in school because I don't even think I can <laughs> name one right now. So Is isn't,
1: isn't that why you're in Gryffindor?
3: Probably. Why don't you Yeah, exactly. Why don't you throw that in there? All right. <laughs>
1: okay. You've got it. Wow. I know I know them. All of but... them? Uh huh.
3: Wow. Of course you do. That is so funny.
1: <laughs> Eagle right here. Uh-huh. All right, sorry. Continue.
3: <laughs> so we get to detention and we've talked about this on the show before, but I am I'm, I'm not over it. 11 p.m. detention in the Forbidden Forest. Let me just say if I had kids, I would be p- and AJ you can talk about this since you have kids. I would be pissed if my kid got this sort of punishment. I mean, hello, dangerous.
0: But you know what though? I I have to agree with Hagrid on this one because Draco Malfoy brings up, you know, Thinking about, instead of going into the forest, just writing lines. I mean, that really serves no purpose. Having a detention at this hour doing something the kids absolutely hate, it's going to teach them a lesson that they're going to not only lose their study time, they're going to lose their sleep, and yet they're still going to have to be able to function the next day in their classes or whatever. So this is something that's definitely going to drive the point home that, yo, you did something wrong, it's time to pay the piper. You know, stand up to it, serve your time, and don't do it again. But it obviously doesn't work. Well, no, it yeah. doesn't. But, you know, <laughs> still, the the point is there. Because, yeah. you know, seriously, you sit a kid down and you say, okay, well, write lines. What's going to happen is they're going to get bored with it. They're going to find creative ways to do it. And their hands are going to hurt. And that's going to be the end of it. It's something simple. It's something easy. Whereas this going into the forest, actually having to do something not only that they don't want to do, but at the time where they'd much rather be doing something else, it's it's an actual punishment. And I'm all for it. And
2: it's not like they're sending them in there without Hagrid. They're, it's not like sending them to fend for themselves in the Forbidden Forest. It's They're setting up an actual task. They are doing a specific thing. Um, they are doing something very useful for the school um, and for
1: Hagrid, and they've got protection there.
3: Yeah. I mean,
1: but but my thought is, like, As much as I love Hagrid, he's not exactly. um, How can I put this gently? Uh, Some, not that I don't trust him, but he's pretty careless. I'm not sure I would want my children in the Forbidden Forest with him.
3: Yeah, and we'll get we'll get to that because I have so many issues with this setup. (laughs) Yeah, Um, and and I also wonder about this punishment coming back to you know what steve brought up last episode do we think the dumb door somehow manipulated the forest as the punishment so that hagrid could be in charge to make sure harry was safe or is that just because you know that's the most likely punishment and hagrid is of course the only person that can really lead kids into the forest
1: well i mean what other options were there i mean
3: sometimes they had to clean trophy cases didn't they
1: yeah, and burp slugs all over them. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's a pretty extreme punishment, regardless of the situation, and and I don't see it as being a routine either, because there's probably not slain unicorns in the forest all that often.
3: Yeah, or that's true. Think,
2: Yeah, never. I think if anyone's going to have manipulated this, it would be Hagrid rather than Dumbledore. That's right. Hagrid wouldn't even kind of notice that it's a dangerous task for them to do. I of think course not. He would just consider that he's kind of helping Harry out by by being nice and being their guardian during this detention.
1: Right, instead of being stuck with someone like Snape. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And even Hagrid says that there's nothing in the forest that's going to hurt them if either Hagrid or Fang are with them. So, you know, maybe yeah. he really does think that it's safe for them.
2: If there's one person you want to be in the Forbidden Forest with, it is actually Hagrid because he is friends with all of the horrible creatures.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's true. He's got the street cred.
1: Yes, he does. Card-carrying member, I think.
3: (laughs) And as they're about to get uh, into the nick of things, um, Filch is mentioning how he he says something about coming back the next morning for what's left of them, and uh, he... (laughs) He's ho- almost hoping for this outcome. Do we think that Filch really would be pleased to see someone, something like that happen? You know, how would he have reacted if something really bad had happened to one of them? If maybe if one of them would have died?
1: I mean, I think he is so bitter and so angry over the fact that all these, you know, kids have magical powers and he doesn't. That I'm not sure he'd be happy about it, but I don't think it, he would lament over it at all.
3: At least not publicly.
0: It's yeah. definitely a jealousy thing because he is completely yeah. jealous that they have magic and he doesn't.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he'd be sad, unfortunately. Terrible. Maybe he'd try and, you know, suck their magical powers out or
3: something. <laughs> <laughs> God. All right. And, and they're get into they getting into the forest and they're splitting up and, you know, the, the, the topic of it being dangerous comes up. And I'm just wondering... Can Hagrid, because Hagrid mentions that as long as they're with he or Fang and on the path, that they'll be fine. Can Hagrid really be sure that nothing will hurt them if they are with he or Fang? I mean, if a swarm of acromantulas come out of nowhere, I don't know if, if Fang can fight them all off. Which also makes me, you know, think, why does he have so much confidence in Fang? Is it just, again, carelessness, or is there some, for some reason, Fang can defend himself or others against magical creatures?
1: I mean, he Fang is a coward to the, you know, 10th degree. Yeah. So I, I think Hagrid just loves Fang and it's his companion, so he feels like, you know, a part of himself is probably in his in his dog, but I have no confidence in Fang's whatsoever. <laughs> I would not I, think, I would not go in the forest with him.
2: Yeah, I don't think it's Hagrid having confidence with Fang. I think it's Hagrid having confidence in the creatures of the forest that they respect him um like if if the swarm of Acromantula came out then just the presence of fang would kind of represent the presence of hagrid and okay. that would that would mean that obviously because hagrid saved um aragog and kind of cared for him but i then mean but they have that kind of respect and that kind of family kind of almost
1: like a blood oath but that's they not tr- hurt things but that's not true because as in fang with harry and ron
3: um, in the forest in the second book, I don't
1: remember. mad. I don't think so. What happens to him? Oh, does he get scared and run off or something? No, he's there. but Hagrid isn't when when um
2: when they're in the forest in in the second book, Hagrid has been sent to Azkaban, hasn't he? Well, so right, the, I, the the protection of the forest has been lifted almost.
1: Right, well, that's what I mean.
3: I yeah, mean, you're right. And they go get Fane to go with them. Yeah, I right, think you're right. right
1: But even at this point, they would be split up. So, I mean, if an Acromantula came along, they wouldn't necessarily know Hagrid was somewhere else in the forest. Hmm. So but when, I
2: think wouldn't they when But in attack? the second book, the Acromantula know that Hagrid is in Azkaban. They know that their gamekeeper hasn't been in the forest for a long time. So I think... The, the, the kind of the threat of Hagrid's reaction isn't there um, if anything were to happen to, to Fang and the boys and Hermione even um, while, while they were all there in the first book Hagrid would definitely do something about it even if it wasn't straight away
0: okay I see what you mean okay and they did definitely have Fang with them in the second book when they went in because and I actually have it in front of me so they definitely had Fang, and the spiders were definitely fighting Fang at that point.
3: Good. Yeah. <laughs> so Hagrid mentions uh, he's he's never known a unicorn to be hurt before. Uh, after he you know introduces to Harry, uh, Hermione, Neville, and Draco that that's what they're going to be doing, and I thought this was really a really good. Um, uh, move on on joe's part because i think it sets up this idea that something so pure and so good the unicorn can only be hurt by something so evil and awful and which we know is now uh Voldemort. so i thought that was just really clever of her
2: one thing i've always picked out at this point is that they were talking about werewolves and werewolves not being fast enough to actually catch and kill a unicorn
3: mm-hmm.
2: and i i just thought it was strange that i mean in Prisoner of Azkaban, we see that unicorns, not sorry, we see that werewolves are actually incredibly fast. So if unicorns are even faster, how does Quirrell manage to catch one? Magic, is, right. Is, is magic really that <laughs> much more powerful than a, a werewolf? And if so, then how come wizards can't protect themselves from werewolves more often?
3: Yeah, that's, huh, I mean. Mm,
1: this seems like a boo-boo. Uh-oh. <laughs> you know, on Joe's part, I mean yeah it's an interesting
2: kind of slight paradox
3: well i guess there's also the fact that if if a werewolf is is attacking you you know you're caught in that moment and especially if you're you know you don't when you're being attacked by something you don't always have your wits about you to be able to like defend yourself as um as well as you maybe could
1: yeah i guess we're not all bear grills right
3: yeah it's true <laughs> So we finally get to uh, to meet um, some centaurs, which I was really excited about um, when I read the first time. And the first thing that Ronan, the first centaur we meet, um, the first thing he says is that Mars is bright. So I thought this was um, a really also a clever pull, because Mars is the Roman god of war, and it's like, boom, boom, battle coming. <laughs> so just a little aside. And a little si-
1: foreshadowing. That's right. Right.
3: And, and the centaurs are oh so frustrating. They just keep repeating over and over about the star, the Mars being bright, stars being in line, whatever. Again, not up with the astronomy. But I just want to scream at them. Just tell us what's going on, okay? But, <laughs> but clearly, they have little concern about the day-to-day events of wizard kind, comparatively to our our human friends.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, they live a lot longer than we do. Yeah. So to them, you know, a day doesn't really matter.
2: Yeah, wizards are just insignificant beings to centaurs. They're just things that are kind of in the way.
3: Yeah. And so we see some red sparks and Hagrid... Good God! Leaves Harry and Hermione. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm just like, WTF, dude? You, you know that there is something going on that is killing unicorns, and, and you and you leave my kids alone. Like, shame on you, shame on you.
1: Again, the bad judgment. I mean, I love Hagrid, but he has bad judgment,
3: man. And and so. <laughs> They, well, I guess uh, so. There's some time that passes because they they split up. They, thankfully, nothing happens to Harry and Hermione while they are alone, and they all get back together. Figure out that um, that Draco was just messing with Neville. Poor Neville, and they split up again. So now it's Draco, Harry, and Fang, and they see this shifty, shady figure. Malfoy bolts, and so does Fang. I mean, so much for the defense. <laughs> so much for this defense that you know Hagrid builds up, because Fang he's like, "Huh, I'm out there. I'm I'm chasing the blonde boy. I'm getting out of here." Tail now. between his legs, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so, so like you pulled up, pulled out earlier. Cat Fang yeah. is not worth anything, right? At least not at this point. He is a coward. No. Love, love the dog, but yeah. not going to defend anyone. <laughs>
2: But so is Malfoy, interestingly, and not only does Malfoy bolt, but he screams, he draws attention to himself <laughs> before he runs. Yeah. If there's the worst thing you could possibly do if you're
1: afraid is to draw attention to yourself in that way. Well,
3: Malfoy's
2: yep.
1: not one of those people who thinks about his actions before he does them. He's very instinctual. He just does it and deals with the consequences later. Yep. Or leaves Harry to deal with them. Exactly. <laughs>
2: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss, and if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at lifeLock.com/slash-aware. Terms apply.
3: And so we get we get this shifty figure who's sucking on some unicorn blood, and you know Harry suddenly feels this immense pain and. and On his forehead, he relates it to his, like, his scar being on fire. And so, clearly, this is, you know, a big heads up for the reader. Because I can't think, you know, after all we've talked about in Philosopher's Stone, a time where the scar is hurting this much. And especially, you know, you're getting to near the end of the book. At least when I read this, I was like, okay, so, like, something is, this is is big. Like, something is going on.
1: I mean, yeah, the most most kind of pain we've gotten is, you know, like a twinge. Mm -hmm.
0: Like,
1: you know, at the at the um, head table in the beginning of the book when is facing away from him and Harry thinks it's Snape. Right. I mean, that's the most we've gotten. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, we at this point, I definitely was like, oh my goodness, what's going on? Is something killing him? You know, I had no idea.
3: Right. All right, so we, we find out from Firenze what the, the unicorn blood actually does to um, someone who drinks it. Um, so it basically that they lead, that they, if it's for someone who's so close to death that they're so desperate, they don't have any other options, but they lived, a, they're basically cursed to where they can only live a half life. And I'm just thinking back to when I read it the first time, this is some intense stuff. I mean, it is dark, twisted, and at the same time intrigued me so much when I read it that first time.
1: I mean, would you guys drink unicorn blood if you were dying? No,
3: no, no. No way. I
1: think the fact
2: that we all say no so quickly there just shows just how desperate Voldemort must have been.
3: Yeah. I mean, clearly, absolutely. Yeah. But
1: what if you were like, you know, 19 or 21 and you had like, you hadn't lived, you wouldn't do it?
3: I don't think so. Hmm.
1: I am 21 and no. <laughs> I, I might. I think I w- it would It would um, depend on how I was close to dying. Um, you know,
2: I guess that's the difference. Voldemort has already kind of half died. He's he's in a non-existence.
3: Yeah, that's actually something I think we should toss to the fans. Like, what what would you guys what would you guys do? I think that we could get a lot of really interesting opinions there.
1: I mean, I feel like I feel like too. You know, it, it says when you slay something so pure and defenseless to save yourself, you'll have about a half life. But what if your intentions are good? What if you're not doing it for evil?
3: Uh, I still think, mm, I still think you're.
1: And what if the unicorn's already dead, but you drink the blood, and because then you didn't kill it.
3: I don't think it's selective it like have that. still the
1: same.
2: But it, I, th- I think there's a lot of kind of technicalities involved. I think if if you're doing it for good, how could you ever kill something for good? Yeah, but if it's sense. already
1: dead, then you haven't killed it.
3: Yeah, but it's still. I think it's still going to have the Maybe same. Maybe the blood wouldn't
1: have the same power. Perhaps. Because mm. it says that the curse comes from killing, from slaying the beast. You know, that's, from.
3: That's true. That's true. That's a good point. Hmm.
1: I mean, I, I, if I was dying and I wandered, a, wandered across an already dead unicorn, I'd be all over it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just saying, like, especially if I was murdered or it was something that I didn't do. Not that I would ever do anything on purpose. It's getting really dark. Sorry. No. I just mean, you know, like I w- I would probably do it. Not in all situations, but in that one at least if the unicorn was already dead.
3: Mm. Yeah.
1: But in a sense,
2: it's the same as creating horcruxes. If you're living a half-life, um you're you're kind of ruining your own life um by killing another thing. In in exactly the same way as creating horcruxes is. Yeah.
1: I'm interested to see would you create horcruxes? No, No. because I would never. I couldn't murder somebody.
2: I think that's the definition, though. If if that's what the curse is, you're murdering the unicorn. But not if it's already dead.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I don't think
2: that. What Hagrid says that he's never heard heard of a a unicorn being hurt before. So maybe they don't die. Maybe they don't die.
1: (laughs) It's possible. That's true. Maybe the opportunity has never presented itself.
3: Yeah, it's probably not that at all frequent, you know, that you would happen upon a a dead unicorn with its blood, you know. I
1: wonder if they, like, kind of fade into the mist, like the earth reabsorbs them. That's why Mm -hmm. they're never found dead.
3: Perhaps.
1: I mean, maybe they live forever. I don't know. I don't know much about unicorns. So, again, throw it to the fans. Tell us what you think. What would you do? What do you think? Teach us about unicorns, listeners.
3: So, uh, Firenze alludes to Voldemort's return and Harry realizes this, you know, as he thinks back to what Hagrid said about not believing Voldemort is really gone. And he, he goes back to that quotation where Hagrid's like, it's swap, if you ask me. Um, but uh, I can't really, Good co- Hagrid. I Good can't Lin. really match Noah's, Noah's voices. So, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> And but I thought this was really interesting as we get to the end. Hermione's not really buying the centaur's uh, fortune telling, and, and we'll talk more about that aspect in our special feature. But I think it's sort of interesting because it sort of um, previews to how she won't do well with divination because she much prefers the uh, the uh, logical aspect to things.
1: Yeah, she's a ve- she's a very um, she needs to touch and see things happening to believe them. She's not much to believe in the, you know, the, the iffy, the iffy things in the wizarding world. Definitely. You know, fortune telling, divination, the mythical things, so to say.
3: And so we wrap up this chapter with the detention finally being over. They get back to the common room um, and Ron's, Ron's up there and Harry discovers that the cloak is back. He has his invisibility cloak back. So, just in case. Just in case mischief Period. can continue.
1: That's right. Okay,
2: so moving right along into chapter 16 through the trap door. Um So we start off with a bit of time passing, and we see Harry's um, worrying his way through his first year exams. We we actually learn quite a lot about the pr- practicalities of the Hogwarts exams at this point um, with clues about the the school's anti-cheating quills and also how um the school does both theory and practical exams we get another brilliant example of joe's humor here with the kids um having snape breathing down their necks as they try to remember how to make a forgetfulness potion
1: yeah i love that part i always (laughs) laugh when i read that line
0: it's a good line i always find it amusing that the one test is that they have to make a pineapple tap dance I mean, seriously, that's, like, one of the silliest things. I mean, is some wizard going to hold a wand to your throat and threaten unforgivables unless you can make a piece of fruit tap dance? It's just... I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I hope so.
3: This no, is I mean, real life, she's, guys.
1: She's just showing the lighter side, the whimsical side, you know, like, who would ever think that?
2: But isn't it brilliant that she does it during exams as well? These are, these are supposed to be a stressful time, and she does these really quite fun
1: Yeah, kind of tasks and they are kids books we have to remember i mean at least at this point they're classified as children's literature so
3: and their first years so right
2: so yeah we've we learned that harry scar has been hurting ever since his trip into the forest um so as as caleb was saying the the really painful moment has has led to several um more kind of stabbing pains um since that one task and his old nightmare is back but now worse with the image of the the hooded figure dripping blood that we saw in the last chapter we haven't really discussed the significance of harry scar hurting all that much really um as we said a second ago we talked about it with the welcome feast so what do you think that that pain is actually created by is it the horcrux uh horcrux attempting to rejoin the whole that's why it happens with the proximity to quirrell and voldemort what do you guys think
1: I mean, yeah, I think it definitely has to do with the connection between the two of them. Um, I mean, obviously, we're not even remotely aware of it at this point, neither is Harry. And I'm, I'm not sure Dumbledore, even at this point, is aware of it. But maybe this type of thing is what kind of starts Dumbledore along the the Horcrux path with the, the, the scar hurting.
0: Plus, at the beginning of the year, it was just a slight twinge. I mean, now Voldemort's had that. All that unicorn blood so he's definitely stronger and that could account for one of the reasons why it's hurting more now yeah
2: why do you guys think that Harry refuses to go and talk to anyone about it um he says that he thinks it's a, a warning that danger is coming but he still refuses to go and talk to either Madame Pomfrey or any of the professors about the fact that this magical scar is becoming more and more painful
3: exactly it's him showing his Gryffindor it's he's taking it into his own hands he he really doesn't have a professor other than maybe Dumbledore that he would trust with that information um he is wanting to he he think in his mind they are the only ones that believe that Snape is doing this obviously they are wrong and he's like well you know what I'm just gonna do it myself here we go balls to the wall <laughs> yeah he is so stubborn
1: gonna... yeah yeah I mean even I mean. Do we think he's, you know, Dumbledore, even at this point, isn't close with Harry. I mean, they haven't even shared more than, what, 10 or 20 words. Right. So why would Harry naturally think to go to Dumbledore? They're not, they're not enemies, but they're not confidants at this point either.
3: Yeah. I think Ron and Hermione are still the only people he'll talk to about anything. Yeah. That that deep, anyway. Unless yeah, he's trying to get a not of
1: he hasn't learned to trust anybody yet, really. Right. In that sense, with you know, with his scar, at least. I
2: find that interesting with Hermione as well. I mean, if if you were a character like Hermione and you saw that your friend was in pain, would you not go to a teacher about it? Would you not try and help or research about it yourself?
3: Research, maybe. I don't think she would tell a teacher because of how it might affect their friendship, which is so crucial to her.
1: Yeah, I mean, how many kids don't speak up when something is happening to one of their friends? Like, how many children out there have been bullied and their friends see it happening and they don't say anything? Yeah. Which is a lesson. Everybody should speak up when their friends are in pain. That's right. Just having a moral moment there. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just think
2: of how many years of hurting scars they could have saved if, if Dumbledore had maybe been clued up to it earlier.
1: But do you think he really could have?
2: He might have found out things quicker. He might have been hunting down Horcruxes for longer before he was injured himself. That's true. Okay. That's an interesting what-if question. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Discuss it more on the forums, listeners. That's right. Please. So, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, we see Harry watching an owl flutter towards the school with a, a note clamped into its mouth. Um, which I've always assumed is the, the note to Dumbledore summoning him to the ministry. Did you guys think the same?
1: Um, oh, after no. the fact. Yeah, yeah, definitely after the, after the
2: fact. fact. So if this note is is flying towards the castle, do we think it's sent from, I don't know, a hidden place in the forest? So it appears to be coming from the right direction
1: at least? Yeah, probably. I mean, Quirrell's out in the... Well, we don't know where he is at the moment, do we? Yeah. Yeah, it's possible.
2: It just seems like a lot of work to do just to to get Dumbledore out of the castle. Yeah, when you could have just sent a message from within the castle itself.
3: Yeah, I guess it just makes it that much more legitimate appearing, anyway.
1: Hmm. Although we know it's not Dumbledore transfigured as an owl.
3: <laughs> just
1: throwing that out there because oh you gosh. know Noah would say it if he was here. So yes. I'm just saying. Sorry, buddy.
2: <laughs> so yeah, suddenly Harry realizes. Um, who exactly carries around an illegal dragon egg? Um, and he starts to piece together the fact that, you know, this person was obviously targeting Hagrid. He was obviously there for one exact reason. So the trio run down to Hagrid's house and ask him the all-important question. And surprise, surprise, Hagrid the Giant has a big mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, though, he, when he actually tells his story and he explains that he told this mysterious figure that wouldn't take down his hood about Fluffy's weakness. He worries about telling Harry this secret, but he doesn't seem to care about telling the mysterious stranger. Why would Hagrid not put two and two together that you can't tell people within the castle or outside of it either?
3: It all comes with the drinking.
1: I was (laughs) just going to say, I mean, he he likes the drink, Hagrid, and (laughs) he doesn't do it around the kids. Um,
3: but funny, really, so. uh, funnily enough, when they show up, <laughs> the first, like he talks about something about exams being over. He's like, um, uh, would you Let's like, have a drink? Oh God, <laughs> yes. He says uh, something about up for a drink or something like that. Oh, yeah. He says, <laughs> finish <I>, your <laughs>
1: exams. Got time for a drink.
3: For a drink, and I'm just like supplying minors, Hagrid. But I mean, obviously he's probably not. He's probably not. But still, that's like the first thing on his mind. Like, yeah, let's. let's I'm get absolutely a drink.
2: certain he is talking about tea there. Yeah, probably. Well, yeah, or yeah, juice. Yeah, yeah. That you?
3: was just funny. Like, like he he's he's just down for a drink always.
1: So. <laughs> but yeah, I think that I think that's where his um his big mouth comes from, is that. When he drinks or when he's drunk, all his inhibitions are gone. He doesn't know how to keep his mouth shut. And he he's not like that at the school. Therefore, when he's at the school, he has his wits about him. I mean, as much wits as Hagrid could ever have, I suppose. Uh-huh.
2: But does he, though? Because he hasn't been drinking when he's actually talking to Harry, and he says exactly the same thing. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Loose lips. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, Hagrid tells Harry and Hermione and Ron that the way to get past Fluffy is to play some music and they will fall straight to sleep. So the trio go running off back up to the castle trying to find Dumbledore to tell him and to warn him that Snape is going to go after the, the stone. But no one seems to know where the headmaster's office is. Do you guys not think it's strange that the children of the school, the students, wouldn't know where the headmaster's office was?
3: Yeah, that 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 is really that much of a secret. So, uh, yeah, I guess that just means like, because I guess the only reason they would really need to know would be for you know disciplinary purposes, and that's usually more immediately handled by their heads of house. So,
1: yeah, I mean, and Dumbledore is pretty mysterious. I would think that most students wouldn't know where his office
3: is and maybe it's just because you know again they're first years and haven't been exposed to it as much probably by your 7th year you have a pretty good idea of where most things are
1: yeah but also i mean we don't see any instances of dumbledore kind of roaming the the castle i feel like he kind of stays in his office and deals with the political beings and political people of the you know of the wizarding world as much as he has to do with hogwarts you know he has other things going on Yeah, Yeah,
2: what exactly does Dumbledore do as a headmaster? We see him kind of make appointments for professors and all that kind of thing, but we never see him teaching, we never see him doing any of the kind of the school activities other than talking to staff and other than in um, Riddle's memory in in book two. What does the headmaster of Hogwarts actually need to do?
1: Be badass. (laughs) (laughs)
3: I mean, I think logistically, I think that's why logistically pretty much, I think McGonagall runs the school. So, yeah,
1: yeah. She's definitely the go to person, I would say, for a lot of people.
3: Mm hmm.
2: Definitely. And luckily, our ever-present McGonagall is there to tell the trio that they should be heading back outside, that they shouldn't be in the castle after their exams have finished. After all, it's a sunny day in the UK, which is very rare, and they should go outside and enjoy it.
1: <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that, because when I was over there um, for the studio tour opening, we had an entire week of sun. It was like 85 degrees and sunny the whole time.
2: That is so rare, I know, don't and understand. I feel like I feel
1: like the luckiest person in the world, because I didn't have to wear, I didn't have to wear a raincoat or an umbrella or anything. So
2: Meanwhile this week our entire country has been flooding whilst you guys have been having a heat wave over there in America.
1: Yes we have. Yes. Yay.
2: Definitely. <laughs> I think we've stolen all your water. I'm so sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, Send give it a back. Some back. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. But I agree, they should be they should be outside enjoying yeah, the day.
2: go sends them all outside. Um, but of course they don't listen and they head up um to the third floor corridor where she once again catches them um is this proof that she actually did take them seriously that she she did listen to them worrying about the the stone she went to try and check on the door herself to make sure nothing was happening probably just checking up on the boys and making sure they're outside
0: i think she's checking it out i mean she seems so shocked when they said well it's about the sorcerer's stone or the philosopher's stone depending on what book you're reading but um so she sent them outside and figured since she's older and has more experience, she'd go up and check on it herself. But something else that caught me about this is that when she catches them up there, she just tells them to go away and she doesn't dock any points or anything. Even though that corridor is supposed to be forbidden and off limits. Right, she does threaten. That's a, a really legally. good point.
2: Yeah, she yeah. threatens it but doesn't do it, yeah. Are they actually within the third floor corridor at that point, though? I don't think they are, so they're not technically breaking any rules. They're just hanging around. Right, it
1: says no sooner had they reached the door separating Fluffy from the rest of the school than Professor McGonagall turned up again.
0: Right, which means that they're in the corridor at the door.
1: Right, they're lurking nearby. Interesting. I I would hope that she would take them seriously. I mean, I feel like McGonagall checks all of those things out. Yeah. You know, she kind of has an in, you know an innate sense of you know um, I don't know of trust of at least of Harry to the point where she she trusts his instincts. So, yeah.
2: in the same way that Snape later does um, in In Order of the Phoenix, where she's where he um, Harry cries out, they've got um, Snuffles in the place. Yeah, they've got Padfoot in the place where it's hidden. Right, and he immediately goes and checks up and and finds out that it's not true. But they never seem to let Harry know that they're going to do this.
1: Well, I mean, how how else would the plot move along if they told him, Okay, Harry, don't worry, we'll take care of it. You sit here and play chess.
2: (laughs) But I would would just think, if you know that Harry is the kind of person that would go and investigate this yourself, you would tell him, don't go and
1: investigate it yourself. Right, I got it. Well, she did, and he (laughs) never listens, because he's a stubborn Gryffindor.
2: This is true. (laughs) And we see this straight away when... Um, Ron and Hermione don't seem to care so much that Voldemort is, is coming back and don't really seem to be understanding Harry's real plight. And we see his first real outburst of the books where he, he really is angry that Voldemort, you know, Voldemort tried to kill him. And he may not know the first the extent of the first war, but he knows exactly what would happen if Voldemort returned, and he knows that it would be the end of the happy wizarding world that he's he's kind of only just found, and he doesn't want that to end.
1: Well, and you notice in this paragraph, he um, he says a lot of things that happen in the last book. You know, he says that, um, haven't you heard what it's like when he was trying to take over? There won't be any Hogwarts to get expelled from. He'll flatten it or turn it into a school for the dark arts. Losing points won't matter anymore, don't you see? And it's just, that's exactly what happens.
3: Yeah, I thought the exact same thing. Rereading it, like how prophetic this um, little speech is.
1: Mhm. He's a smart kid. Yes. Has good instincts. And Joe's a smart writer.
3: Oh. Yeah. Genius. genius. Oh, this is the
1: obligatory <laughs> genius comment of the show. <laughs> Brought to you by Chapter Sixteen: The Philosopher's <laughs> Stone.
2: So yeah, then it's invisibility cloak time, and as we were discussing earlier, um, we we see all three of them fitting under the cloak. Um, is it the first time that they've done that? or Because earlier it was just two of them and the yep. dragon, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah, this it's always, always been just two, yeah. And we get a really nice little exchange, which really kind of sums up their friendship, where Harry says, all three of us? Oh, come off it. You don't think we're going to let you go alone, do you? And Hermione says, of course not. How do you think you'd get to the stone without us? Yeah.
3: Biffles.
1: Aww. Aww. <laughs> BFFs forever. <laughs> no, it's yeah. pretty great. And I mean, it just... They all it, this you know shows that they all truly do belong at Gryffindor because they don't care how scary or dangerous it's going to be, they're going to be there with their best friend, yep, no matter what.
2: I think it's interesting at this point that Harry thinks that he's about to set off and do it all on his own as well. He doesn't really kind of click that his friends are going to come with him. But later on, all of his speeches are about how he's always had help, he's never done it alone. Um, so I think it's a mark of their friendship that. This is the moment that solidifies that, the moment that he knows that for the first time in his life, he is not facing this alone. Right.
1: He finally has Definitely. someone to depend on.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But even with those people to depend on, they wait until after dinner, which I've always found strange. I mean, they've, uh-huh. they've well, like, seeked out this corridor, but being caught,
1: but then they go and eat. Well, they got to have full bellies.
3: Yeah. This may <laughs> be the last night they ever eat, you know, so. It's true. <laughs> Maybe Hogwarts food, food is just
1: that good. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I would hope so. It sounds yummy. Everyone's
2: always talking about sneaking down to the kitchens and everything. So maybe the, the house elves are just that good cooks. Hey,
1: yeah, Must be.
2: <laughs> and once again, poor Neville. Neville Longbottom stands up and tries to stop them breaking any more rules. Um, I think that's the, the fourth poor Neville that we've had during this <laughs> yeah. um, this
1: short podcast. And I mean, we, we but, touched on it briefly before, and it's like, I never realized this before, but, you know, Neville is one tough dude. Like, he stands up for a lot of things that he believes in, albeit, I mean, sometimes it's very timid, timidly, but I never realized just how Gryffindor he was before until doing this reread. I just I never noticed it until the last couple books.
2: I've always been been fascinated by Neville by the fact that he is he's almost the other Harry. He's everything that Harry is as well. He he was the other option, the one that Voldemort didn't take. Um so he's we were talking earlier about Malfoy living up to a name, but Neville's got all of that history to live up to and if that's not a mark of bravery that he he does try so hard when he's perhaps not quite as capable. He's always trying to do the best for everyone around him.
1: He's very caring, Um, Neville. Very much. Definitely. Especially towards his friends. And I mean, Harry, Hermione, and Ron have given him so much, you know, um, they've instilled so much in him, you know, given him self worth almost in a way.
2: Definitely. And I can't wait for all those years down the line when we're finally getting to discuss that last book when we can really see
1: Neville shine. I know. I just remember my favorite moment from... um, Definitely all those part two in the movie theater was when he shows up and, you know, at the midnight showing, everybody's screaming. It was just... Oh, my
3: gosh. Yeah, and it was the crazy best. for him. It was
1: the best. Well, he's a... See, do- that's
2: another interesting thing with, with the idea of the movies. You guys, American audience, was always sort of cheer and respond to these movies. England doesn't do that. Really? Um, England huh. just sits silently and watches a movie. Oh, that's but,
1: a bummer. That's,
2: <laughs> I know. That's so intriguing. But it's quite interesting because... One of the first times I've actually experienced people cheered as soon as they saw Neville. They when I mean when he was with that sword, they they really responded to that movie in a a very kind of American way. It's really interesting to see how the English movie experience changed because of that moment.
1: Nice. Well, and it probably doesn't help that or doesn't hurt that you know Matt Lewis is pretty much gorgeous. So (laughs) anyway, continue. Sorry, tangent. Anyway.
2: So yeah, Neville stands up to his friends and unfortunately it's Hermione that really does turn against him and she puts the the leg locker curse on him, full body bind. He falls over to the floor and they just leave him there.
3: Poor Neville.
0: (laughs) They don't even check on him. He falls on his face. He could have broken his nose or something. (laughs) They could have at (laughs) least lifted him up and put him on a sofa. Yeah.
3: No time. Gotta go. Gotta go.
2: But that's the interesting thing because as they do leave... They come across Mrs. Norris and Peeves. They both get on their way, get in the way on their approach to the third floor. So we've had Neville, Mrs. Norris, and Peeves. How many delays can you get in one page? You've got all of these kind of mini bad guys almost getting in your way before you get to your final destination. Yeah. It's kind of like mini bosses in a game.
1: Yeah, it totally reminds me of like Super Mario Brothers where you had to like kill like the mini bosses before you got to like the big boss at the end of the level
3: just so frustrating
2: and they're all things that we've experienced in the past as well we've had a big showdown between mrs norris and filch we have had a big showdown with peeves we've had all those moments where neville's been there and kind of getting in the way and finally we get to the door the the trio overcome all of these obstacles but the door is ajar the door is open they are too late and we get task one hagrid's three-headed dog do you guys find it interesting that in the the movie they had the the music already happening whereas in the book it was kind of the the music is finished and they were facing the three-headed dog straight on
1: Well he didn't have the he didn't have the flute in the movie so right. I think that's that's where the difference comes in and they I think they wanted that harp playing to show kind of a the, the magic of the moment, you know?
3: Mm -hmm. Well, I
0: like, I like the classical reference of the harp being there in both the movie and the book because, you know, Orpheus went down to get his, his wife from Hades and he played his harp with such grace that it lulled Cerberus to sleep. So it's another, another classical reference being brought into the Harry Potter books by Joe.
1: Definitely. Man, what if fluffy really is Cerberus? I mean, we've talked about this before, but how cool don't is really that? I really
2: not think he is. He is a Greek dog. Definitely. We've heard that. That is so cool. <laughs> Genius. However, whereas Cerberus needed that musical grace, Fluffy really doesn't seem to need to. He'll fall asleep at the first note of that right. flute. <laughs> Which, you know
3: Straight up ha- I doubt that Harry's
2: ever had I doubt that Harry's ever had any kind of music lesson. He doesn't know how to play a flute. So, musical talent is not necessary in the music that makes Fluffy fall asleep. Uh-huh. But this task is solved by both Harry and Hermione playing that flute, and they, they jump down through the trapdoor, as the title suggests, and land in The Devil's Snare, task two by Professor Sprout, Um Where once again we get a really lovely moment of Hermione's character, where she, she completely understands straight away what they've landed in, she, she sees the danger, but she struggles to remember exactly how to fight them. Um... And when she does, she has a real Muggle moment and says, so "There's no wood <laughs> for a fire."
3: Uh, love it.
1: I know I love that moment. It's so great, and it just shows again that like magic is not yet instinctual for them. It's not the first thing that they think about. Yeah,
2: definitely. I think it's it's really easy for us to forget that she's as new to this world as Harry. She's she's researched it so much that she seems to know so much about magic, but she really doesn't. She's in the same situation as Harry.
0: At least Ron is on the ball. Tell, asking, she's gone mad. Are you a witch or not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. They're a good team. I mean,
1: they'd be stuck there if it was up to Hermione, I guess, right?
2: Yeah, definitely. So eventually Hermione does draw out her wand. She she creates one of her fires that she seems to be really skilled at. She uses fire quite a lot within her kind of problem solving. Um, and they escape from the Devil's Snare and they kind of pull themselves together and move on for task three which is the, the Quidditch kind of task, but we later find out that it's probably Professor Flitwick that has enchanted these magical keys. So perhaps Hooch and Flitwick are working together on this one, um, where all three of the trio climb onto a broomsticks and have to fly through the rooms searching for the one key that will fit the door.
1: And she tried Alohomora, but it didn't work. Poor girl. She did try mm-hmm. more that didn't work. Amara. Oh, that was nice. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps here, this is a,
2: an example of when magic fails. Earlier we had when when Hermione forgot about magic and her kind of muggle skills failed. Now her magic is failing also, and it all comes down to kind of athletic skill on a broom, which I find really interesting because we've, we see Hermione on a broom and she actually doesn't fail. Everyone always talks about how Hermione can't fly, but she really does manage to here. Um... Harry kind of explains the tactics and says we need to close in on this thing and they all manage to approach it from different directions Hermione shooting straight up um, and Harry eventually pins it against the
3: wall yeah she's definitely in the moment she you know does what she needs to on the broom to get it done
1: yeah she'll definitely never be on the team though I don't think <laughs> I, th- I think she says later that she just doesn't like flying she doesn't get it Yeah. see the appeal but,
0: but again that's something that she can't learn from a book
1: Right.
2: Yeah. But even, even though she can't learn it from a book, she, she still does have some skill on a broom, even if she doesn't want to, to use it. Yeah. So that's a lesson to all of the kids out there who, who you know, they can play sports, but they just choose not to, like <laughs> me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, then they move on to task four, which is Professor McGonagall's, our fabulous game of wizard's chess, giant wizard chess. And this one is the first time that we really see Ron excelling in solving the issue. Um, It's all about tactics. It's all about gaming. And Ron is this hero. He is the knight on the horse, and he he saves the day. But in the end, he has to sacrifice himself to do this. What do you guys think this says about Ron's character?
3: Uh, Well, I just remember, you know reading this and rereading it before uh, the last book came out and I always came back to this passage because I always thought Ron was going to die at the end of the series and so I al- always thought this was like Joe setting up the you know the preview of him setting himself up as the the sacrifice to ultimately die so that they could succeed
1: That's exactly what I was going to say there were so many theories flying around you know uh, again later like when the last book, was about to come out and everybody said Ron's going to die he's the one he's the weasley but thank goodness he didn't i would have been pretty sad yeah but
2: it is what she planned isn't it so maybe this it was written as an example of ron's
1: self sacrifice later on right cuz she did think about killing him yeah 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 thank you joe for not killing off the weasley Definitely. yeah uh, we're sorry for fred but we're glad uh, ron's uh, alive <laughs> I
2: think the the romance of of him and Hermione kind of won out over the the tragedy of an early death for him.
1: Love triumphing over evil. There it is again.
2: But at this stage, unfortunately, Ron does have to sacrifice himself in order to move on. Why doesn't he just... Jump off the horse before it gets destroyed. Surely that would be a easier way of continuing.
3: That's, that's, but that's the role he took. He knows it's a, he knows it's a real wizard's chess match. And he wouldn't have probably, he probably would have worried that would have screwed up, you know, Harry and Hermione being able to get through.
1: But he's not, he's mm-hmm. not actually on the night. Um, cause the three pieces in the beginning of the game walk off the board or slide yeah, off the board, I yeah, guess. Yeah, that's true. So, so that's movie where he's on the night.
2: Oh, true. But he still does get hurt.
1: He does. That's, He could have moved out the way. (laughs) That's true. Well, he probably needed to be knocked out, you know, plot device. True.
3: Yeah.
1: Okay. So,
2: unfortunately, Ron falls, and without even really being able to go and check on him, they have to move forward. So Harry and Hermione leave the room and and enter task five, which is Professor Quirrell's himself. It is the mountain troll. But luckily, that's already been taken care of. They don't have to do any more troll fighting Especially without Ron there, with his brilliant skills at um, Wingardium Leviosa. Well, you know mm-hmm. what I
1: was just thinking of that I never realized before is that doesn't this kind of um, say that Quirrell's is the one who let the troll in in the first place?
3: Yeah, I was thinking about that also as I reread.
1: I mean, otherwise, why would he think to use a troll? I mean, you know, it's obvi- he's obviously you know very good at getting them into the castle and then knocking them out. So. Definitely. I guess this should be, I mean, this is probably a clue as to who is there at the end of the chapter.
2: Yeah, definitely. Definitely at this point, it's it's kind of giving you that little glimpse that maybe it's not Snape that, that is there. But at the same time, is a mountain troll really defense against the dark arts? I, I'm always surprised by how much defense against the dark arts seems to be creature-focused. F- yeah. Is that not care of magical creatures more?
3: Yeah, because th- even Lupin does a lot with creatures when he teaches... So that's, yeah, that's. I would
2: have thought that dark arts would be how to kind of protect yourselves from dark spells rather than anything else.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, but some of those—I mean, some of the creatures that they're focusing on are all kind of, you know, tempting creatures that try and lure you into the to the wrong situation or in the wrong direction. Maybe that's just one portion. I mean, we don't really hear about. I mean, they never have a proper defense against the dark arts class.
0: Right. No.
1: So we don't really know what a proper class looks like. So I don't know.
0: Back to the troll, I wonder if this is the same troll that Quirrell let in at Halloween. Because I remember on that episode, you guys were wondering what happened to the troll afterwards. Maybe Quirrell took it and used it as his part of the protection of the stone.
1: Well, in the book, it says that it's even larger than the one they had tackled before. Oh, that's so. true. Mm. Maybe it grew. <laughs> it might have. It might have. That's true. <laughs>
2: But luckily, even if it is larger, they don't have to fight it. So thanks a lot, Quirrell. You made their task easier at that point. So they move on, and this is my favorite task. It's task six, Professor Snape's, and it's the potions logic puzzle, which, of course, is solved by Hermione with her, her cool logic and cool thinking.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would have never made it past this part, um... Hermione is right. There are so many, you know, wizards and muggles alike that don't have an ounce of logic, Um, myself included. I mean, not to say that I don't have logic, but I would have never been able to solve this puzzle. I am awful at things like this. Awful. I would have been stuck in that room forever. (laughs)
3: Yeah.
1: See, I love logic
2: puzzles, and I remember being, you know, a very young kid and literally putting my book down and writing out that riddle and trying to solve it. I don't know what that really says about me, but I, I literally sat there for a good kind of half an hour trying to solve this riddle, and happily, I did.
1: So I'm quite proud of myself. Yeah. See, um, even if I had, even if I tried to do that right now, I wouldn't be able to figure it out. I mean, maybe, <laughs> but definitely not as a, a younger child.
2: Yeah, we want to hear your responses out there as well. Did you guys, our listeners, ever, dis- ever kind of work this out before Hermione? Did you, do you follow her logic as to what, um, which potions send them forward and back? Yeah, let us know. I think that J.K. Rowling had the potions puzzle as one of her tasks at one point, didn't she? We didn't, or is that in um, Pottermore that you have to go and click the right potions yourself? Pottermore, yes. Pottermore, Pottermore, yeah. Yeah, I always love that. I have to, you know. I love that we do get these little moments in Pottermore where we get to properly immerse ourselves in the books and, and do that task just as they were
1: doing then. Um, yeah, I totally cheated on that one. <laughs> yeah. Fail. I mean, I stared at it forever and I couldn't figure it out. So I'm sorry to say, I know, five points from Ravenclaw. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, eagles.
2: But it's okay because Hermione did solve the po- solve the puzzle. She She knows exactly which potions will go forward and back. Unfortunately, there's only enough left for one person to go forward. So Hermione gets sent back to um to go and get help. Did they not think of sending an owl to Dumbledore before? I mean, if they had all of this time to plan, they could have you know gone and got Hedwig and and told Dumbledore.
3: Yeah, that's yeah. true, right? They're pro- they're not thinking straight clearly.
1: Yeah, <laughs> one of those situations where the the moment takes over. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So, Harry is the only one that can move forward, but before he does, we get that brilliant line that is so famous Books and cleverness, there are more important things friendship and bravery. And oh, Harry, be careful. And here we have Hermione really proving that she is a Gryffindor over Ravenclaw. Books and cleverness are all very well, but it's the, the important things of friendship and bravery that really matter. Mm-hmm.
3: Yes, mm. it's true.
2: At this point, we, we start to realise that, you know, they've had six tasks. They've had six professors have their own little... Um, or Well, five professors in Hagrid have their own little um, tasks for them to get through. So we've got that one final room that we're about to head into in chapter 17. And you get that lovely symbolism of the seven there again. You get all of that magical power coming so that the, the last task is the most important. The seventh is the most magical but as Harry steps through the fire, we get that line There was already someone there, but it wasn't Snape. It wasn't even Voldemort. And we get left on a cliffhanger. So who out of our readers guessed from the first read that it wasn't going to be Snape in that room? And who did you guess that it wasn't Snape and it wasn't
1: Voldemort? Who was it? I, I had no Let us I know. had no idea
0: myself. Personally. I was totally duped. Yep. I know. But of course, I didn't read the first book. And yeah, here's my confession to everyone listening: I did not pick up the first book until two and a half weeks before the last one came out. So yeah, I knew, but I had seen the movies.
3: Wait, you didn't start reading until after s- the almost right before the movies were out done? Is that what you said?
0: I started no, the last book. The last book. I started oh, reading. I was like,
3: that doesn't make sense. <laughs> okay.
0: I, I started reading the books because Order of the Phoenix was coming out. And my, my bestest friend in the whole wide world told me, well, you need to read the book because this movie is only like two hours long and the book is like 900 pages. So I was like, fine, I'll read the books. And I read all seven books in less than three weeks. Wow. It was amazing.
1: Well, good. Yeah. I wonder how many other fans had figured it out. I know. Like I said, I definitely did not figure it out.
3: Nope.
1: That's the end of chapter 17. And we're going to find out who was beyond that door. Dun, dun, next, yeah, that's right, on the next episode.
2: That was chapter 16, chapter 17's next, sorry.
1: Oh, sorry, did I say 17? <laughs> well, Yeah. Everyone knew what I meant. <laughs> anyway, all right, we're going to move into our special feature for the week. And this is um, one we haven't done before. It's called The Unspeakables. And this is where we talk about the invisible, visible powers that are present in the series and the canon. And this week we are going to talk about destiny, fate, and the centaurs. So... Just a small little background on the centaurs. You know how I love my history lessons. Um, they in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. They're described as very mysterious creatures, um, and they avoid muggles and wizards alike. Um, we know that they're readers of the stars and of the planets, and they tend to stay kind of in a neutral position. Even though, of course, in the end, they you know they do fight for Harry. They do believe in the good, even if they won't you know kind of intervene. So going back to Caleb's chapter, chapter fifteen, where the centaurs are really introduced to us, um, we see that they don't want to intervene at all. I mean, they they even get into an argument with forenzy about it. So they clearly have the information, but they aren't willing to, you know, kind of talk about it or or give it to the to the wizards in any way. So does that put them at fault in any way, or is it acceptable that they're willing to just go along? And accept the fate. I mean, it seems that forensi is willing to take a stand, even if that might mean going against, you know, the the inevitable events that are going to happen, fate.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I can understand that, you know, they are much more broad seeing, and so why, as to why they are, you know, not wanting to intervene, they're not wanting to intervene, but I still think that you know, given the situation and that they know that Voldemort is abound, uh, I, I'm assuming they know Voldemort because of what we we hear from them. Um, that it, it's time to like take a stand, and I think that's why you know Ferenzi does. And I it's uh, it's really frustrating for me that they aren't willing to do the same along with him and all, and also not just take a stand with him, but berate Frenzy for doing so.
1: Yeah, I mean they they call him a common mule because he helps Harry. Like I feel like. As creatures of all knowing, in in a way, it's their responsibility to, even if they don't want to tell them what's going on, just to, to protect, in a, in, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, does that make sense? I'm not quite sure how to say it. Um, yeah. Do you think that they really
2: don't try to help? I mean, I know that a lot of people find this phrase annoying, but, you know, they do keep saying Mars is bright tonight. That means something to them. They, they are saying that, you know, Mars is bright. It is a symbol. It, it is, as Caleb was saying earlier, it might um, symbolize the onset of war. Um, yeah. It is, it does mean that something is about to happen. So maybe that is their, their clue. It's them trying to interfere without interfering. They are trying to offer that help without actually doing anything themselves. Yeah. It's just that Harry and the others don't understand what that means.
3: Right. And, yeah, and Haggard just isn't able to pick up on it, which shocking. But, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> But, yeah, I, I think that's that's a good point. I mean, I think, you know, they certainly, they are very, but they are still very adamant that they do not, you know, want to take a direct role, which, you know, is, a, is again, understandable. But I, I think that's, that's why it's such an interesting thing that Joe decides to pull them in, you know, right at the, almost near the end of the book. Um, and sort of introduce this element of destiny Which we really, you know, had not been introduced to And sort of is, you know Even though it doesn't come up until a couple uh, to For a couple more books There's almost this, you know, big lead-in to prophecy and all of that
1: I mean, do we think that Harry would ha- I mean, anything would have actually happened to Harry If he hadn't been rescued?
3: Yeah, I, I think so uh, I mean, Um,
2: That moment in the forest where um, the Quirrell Voldemort um, kind of creature does kind of lunge at Harry after um, Malfoy has run away. If if the centaur hadn't intervened at that one moment, then definitely Harry would have been attacked. Um, Whether that would have stopped the events of, you know, chapter 16 and 17 happening because it would have meant that, you know, Quirrell would have touched him at that point and they would have had that kind of pain link then. Mm -hmm. Um, who knows? I mean, that would be an interesting discussion about does, does fate necessarily mean the actions that happen have to be the exact ones that do? Or does it mean that the, the final outcome will always be the same no matter what path takes you there? Right.
3: I mean, who was in
1: control at that point? Was it Quirrell or was it Voldemort?
3: Voldemort, I would say.
2: I would say Quirrell because I think, um... The, the conversation that they were having in that room when Quirrell was crying that was Voldemort telling Quirrell to go and um. you know, kill the unicorn and drink the blood so it was Quirrell that was doing those actions
3: yeah I agree you're right that's a good point uh,
1: so but do you think Quirrell would have actually harmed Harry I mean I feel like Voldemort would have had to have some influence over him in order for Quirrell to actually harm Harry because he's so you know subdued and kind of nervous and I feel like he doesn't do well in confrontation, as we've seen several but times. is he,
2: or is that just is that just the the figure that we see throughout most of the book? Isn't that the the hidden figure? I mean, he doesn't stutter in chapter seventeen.
1: That's true, but is that because of Voldemort? Ha- I mean, because
2: hmm. I always see it that Voldemort is this kind of figure in the back of his head and he's kind of influencing him and he can control him through kind of threatening, but I don't think he has like full control of the body.
1: Right. He can't really put the thoughts into the mind or force him to say something. Yeah. Hmm. Okay.
2: But this is an entirely different discussion. (laughs) Yeah. We were talking about fate. Right.
1: Well, there, well, there's a quote in the book that says the planets have been read wrongly before now, even by centaurs. I hope this is one of those times. So, I mean, this kind of sets up a, um, you know, destiny and fate versus choices. And here we are back again, you know, at choices. And is he really saying that it appears, you know, that Harry's going to die, but he's hoping it isn't true? Is this our first real hint that Harry is going to die? And in a way, is Frenzy getting his wish when Harry does die, but even though he doesn't die?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, looking back, this is a really interesting Uh, Preview um, and sort of like the centaur, their own way of fortune telling that you know they they it's clear from what Ferenzi is saying that he must see that Harry is going to die or at least some sort of catastrophic end. And you know, he's hoping that something of that sort does not happen. And you know, maybe that's why um, Ronan and Bane were a little more hesitant to intervene because they know that this end needs to happen for Voldemort to be defeated just as Dumbledore does you know as we see back in old conversations between Dumbledore and Snape in his memory we know that Dumbledore recognizes at some point um, that Harry needs to die Um, so maybe you know that's why Ronan and Bane are a little hesitant to to intervene too much.
2: Do you really think the the planets are being that specific though that it's saying that Harry will die or do you think it's just saying that maybe Voldemort will rise again or that the war is coming, as we were discussing earlier. Uh,
3: it's hard to say. Because any of those
2: things would be bad things that are about to happen. Yeah, um, that's that, true. That they would be hoping isn't true. That's
3: true. I mean, I think it's you know, it's it's a lot of interpretation on their part. So you know, that may be a stretch for them to see that much into it. I
1: mean, I wonder if Dumbledore has discussions about you know with the centaurs, because Dumbledore seems to be. I mean, he's obviously enlightened. So he would probably catch up on that Mars is bright tonight. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Yeah. And he would be able to interpret that into something, you know, that's helpful. Hmm. But thinking of Dumbledore, I'm wondering, like, you know, we've talked a lot about in the past couple of shows, you know, how Dumbledore is controlling all the events of the first book. And, I mean, Dumbledore compared to, you know, Fate or Destiny, like, who is controlling who? Like, is Destiny forcing Dumbledore in a way to do all these things, or is Dumbledore influencing fate and destiny by his actions? Like, what is influencing what? Or are they working together?
3: Hmm. That's tough.
1: Interesting idea. Yeah. Because, I mean, we talked about it, you know, we touched on it briefly before, but is fate all the events that lead up to the main event, or is it, you know, the, the outcome? Is that what you're fated to do no matter how you get there?
0: I would say yeah. it's the outcome. I mean, you know, your choices and everything could take you so far, but if if you eventually you are supposed to, in Harry's case, meet Voldemort and die, it doesn't matter what he does to get there, he's still going to get there.
2: So yeah, I think this is a good time to, to come into our posed question of the week. Um as we've we've just discussed um, chapter 15 has that strong focus on fate whereas chapter 16 really is kind of the opposite of that it's all about harry in the trio um having all of the the action and preventing events from coming to pass um so our question this week is all about harry and if harry listened to his teachers and to the centaurs and you know he trusted the teacher's skills in setting up the tasks to prevent the theft of the stone would voldemort have ever been able to capture it was voldemort always, you know, destined to succeed in finding the stone? Um, Was Harry destined to intervene and stop it happening? Or was it all thanks to Dumbledore's interference, um, unlike the centaurs, that... Was it Dumbledore's interference that inspired Harry to act and face Voldemort in Chapter 17? Um, Obviously, we'll discuss this more in the next episode when we finally get to our Chapter 17 discussion, Um, but it would be great to have your ideas to really influence that discussion in our show
1: in two weeks' time. Yeah, I'm so excited to hear what what um what the listeners think because that it's so intriguing to me. You know who's influencing what? How much? You know, is Dumbledore's hand making a difference in this? Yeah, where does the real power lie? Right.
3: Yeah, and I, and I think that's what's so so unique as we do this reread. Um, you know, we're able to. Really go in depth like this to really process like all of this thought behind something that, you know, we may have not um, gone as much in depth the first or even maybe the second time we read the series. At least that's true for me, I know.
1: And I feel like this is the first time I've had a chance to think about it since all the books have been out. I mean, having all of the information, obviously, well, we don't have all the information, but all the published information is really helpful.
3: Well, that pretty much wraps up the show for this week. Um, so I guess, f- first off, I just want to wanna thank AJ for joining us. Uh, it's been really great having you on and um, providing some really cool insight into uh, the chapters we discussed this week.
0: Well, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun to be
1: here with you guys. Great. And if any of you listeners want to be on the show, much like AJ, there's several ways you can go about doing that. The first is to submit content on our website, which is alohamora.mugglenet.com. You can comment on many of the posts right there on the front page, or you can click the forums tab and go over there. Um, there's over, you know, there's a lot of discussions going on there all the time, and us hosts we see them, we we notice you. So if you're commenting, we will email you, and we will invite you to be on the show. The other way to get on the show is to send us a recording of yourself um, analyzing a portion of the books please note that you do need to have proper audio equipment because, obviously, you know we need to be able to hear you, as do the fans when they're listening to the show later. And you can send that to podcast at gmail.com.
3: Yeah, and just to give you guys all of our contact information, remember that you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, our handle is at alohamoramn.
2: Um, and really make sure you do follow us there because we are doing something very special at LeakyCon. If you aren't following us on Twitter, you won't be able to know what's going on and you won't be able to join in. So make sure you follow us for updates.
3: Yeah, we're really excited about LeakyCon and hope to see a lot of you guys out there. Um, also, make sure you have us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash And you can listen to us right on our Facebook page. Just click on the podcast tab, choose an episode, and it's all yours. And we are on Tumblr at mnalohamora.tumblr.com, And we also have this really new and exciting feature uh, for you guys to keep in touch with us that we really are hoping you guys will take advantage of. And that is a phone number. So we have a phone number. It is 206-GO-ALBUS. So 206-G-O-A-L-B-U-S. Or the actual numbers are 206 462 5287 and you can use this phone number for the Aloha more show to leave us voicemails just like you would to post comments or answer questions or give your feedback on the main side or the forums and we will be able to use this new feature during the recap of the previous week's show just like we are when we're reading people's comments Uh, a couple things we just want to mention this is a toll call so it's not like an 800 number so just keep that in mind if you're calling long-distance also you know, if you're if you're younger, just make sure you have your parents' permission. Uh, we want to make sure that they're aware of what you're doing. But we definitely would love to hear some of you call into the show, so we can use that for as early as next uh, our next show.
1: Yeah, we can't wait. We make some calls. We want to hear them.
3: Yeah, and also um, make sure you have bookmarked our main website, which is alohomora.mugglenet.com. And as we've mentioned before, our main email is alohomora podcast at gmail.com
2: Don't forget you can also subscribe to us on our iTunes feed and make sure you get all of the episodes as they are released. Um, you, I think you can also subscribe to us or favorite the page on our Libsyn and other accounts as well. Um, so that really sums up our show for today. So thank you very
1: much for listening. I'm Rosie. I'm Caleb. And I'm Kat. Thank you for listening to episode 7 of Mora.
3: Open the Dumbledore. Just a second, my nephew just came into my room. Kim, sorry. Jackson, um, I can't play right now. Mom, you gotta touch Kim. Josh, you gotta be quiet too, dang it. (sighs) Sorry guys, dang it. That's
1: fine. It's okay, how old is he?
3: almost two. I'm not annoyed at him, annoyed at my brother because he knows what I'm doing and he's trying to mess with me.
1: Boop, 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 okay. <clears throat> you can drink when you're not talking, by the way, because the editors will edit that out. Right, guys? Woo for editors. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty amazing. Boop, boop, psh, psh, psh. Cut.